It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Susan Cameron. Susan served as president and chief executive officer, as well as executive and non-executive chair of the board of directors of Reynolds American Tobacco. When Reynolds acquired Lolliard back in 2015, it was reported to be the largest acquisition undertaken by a female CEO. Susan received a bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Florida and an MBA from Bellamar University. Susan Cameron, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful to have you today. And as I said just before we got started, I am just inspired by your background. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. And we'll start kind of where we normally start with our CEO interviews. And, you know, tell us a little bit about your early years. You know, where'd you grow up? Uh, What kind of family life did you have? I grew up in Florida, actually, St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, Florida. And my my parents are both from New York, as is everybody down in South Florida. Um, and so anyway, I grew up in St. Petersburg and then moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida when I was 15. I would describe myself as a happy child. I had lots, lots of friends and, uh, uh, but my parents divorced when I was 12 and, and I have two brothers who are quite a bit younger and you were the oldest so of three. I, I was the oldest of three and the only girl, um, but I uh, was a good student. I liked school. I liked uh, extracurricular activities. And uh, a funny story is when uh, my mother has these old report cards, you know, <laughs> that, 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 that only a mother would keep. Um, of course. And uh, there was something, it was like the, the kindergarten report card or something. And it said, Susan likes to tell the other children what to do, but they, but they, re- they, <laughs> but they really enjoy it. <laughs> so, so, so that was a, a true <laughs> indication of future leadership, a, a, true, <laughs> a true early indicator. So <laughs> that's wonderful. So parents were divorced at 12. Obviously that I'm sure had a, an influence on your life. Did you spend time with both parents then growing up from that period or were they in different parts of the country? They were both in the state, and I did spend time with both, and I learned a great deal from both. But I do believe that it was something that um, I was determined to be financially independent (laughs) watching that situation. And so I do think that inspired me to be uh, pretty driven to be successful in my own right. (laughs) 
were your mom and dad professionals uh, or was mom more of a stay at home mom with the, you and the younger brothers or tell us a little bit about their careers? Uh, my dad was a lawyer and also had spent time in advertising and marketing. And uh, my mother did work, um, but more in sort of uh, office administration, uh, community service. Um, so she wasn't a professional. What were some of the influences that your parents had on you growing up? very positive in the context of always encouraging me that I could be whatever I wanted to be, which was a little bit frightening because they weren't ones to push you in a certain direction. Right, um, right. And my mom had has incredible creativity uh, and insight and patience. And my father was quite a raconteur. And so I had two very different personality styles. And uh, Hopefully got a bit of both of them, um, which I do believe I did. But they were very positive. And, and uh, you know, the, I would say, you know, I was always going to go to university. That was never uh, up for grabs. But where I was going to go and what I was going to do was. Uh, and, and so they were very supportive and, uh, you know, and, and positive, uh, you know, optimists. Were both your parents college grads? My mother was not. My father, yes. What about other influencers? You know, who or what uh, influenced you in those early years? Were there any mentors or any folks that, you know, you either uh, looked up to or perhaps had some, you know, some words for you that you remember uh, back during those early days? Well, you know, grandparents. And of course, I have the, the I, I'm so happy to be a grandmother now, but uh, grandparents have tremendous influence. And of course, you don't realize they it at the time. Part of your life. When you're when you're little, you don't really realize it. But they lived in New York, and so you know that involved going to the city and seeing you know a very different culture than St. Petersburg, Florida, and 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 they were very diligent, hard workers. So I did I was influenced by them. And then everybody has a teacher, and I had a teacher named Mrs. Mrs. Northcraft. And uh, she, and you know, you <laughs> remember amazing. this you remember name, the name, you know. Yeah. And, Mrs. Keys was one of mine, and Mrs. Yeah. Swanson was my third grade teacher. So hats off to both of them. But yeah, well, so what, what grade was that that she was? You know, uh, I'm thinking it was third or fifth. It elementary was school. Wow. Elementary. Yeah. And, uh, but I spent hours and hours after school with her. And she was, uh, you know, she was a great teacher, but quite inspirational and, and, uh, you know, just very willing to listen. And, and, uh, so it was, that was a great experience. That's awesome. Yeah. Were you a good student? You mentioned that earlier, kind of top of your class, A's, middle of the road B's, where you kind of, where were you in those early years? I was always probably like top 10%, not top five. I, I had a lot of other things going on and I enjoyed it. And, um, so I would say top 10%. Yeah. What were some of those outside activities, sports, music, theater, what, what types of things were you involved in? Well, when I was young, you know, I, I was in brownies and I was, you know, in, in, in Girl Scouts, I played the piano and, um, uh, I wouldn't say it was so much sports, did a bit of musical theater, which I enjoyed. And, uh, so I'm sure that helped later with your presentation skills, right? I think so. Actually, <laughs> I, I think so. And, uh, any sports again that you not were engaged really much. with or excelled at? Not too much. I mean, you know, that we did still have PE in school in those days, of which course. was, yes. which I yes. always thought was a good now. thing, you know? Um, 
but uh, I wasn't too sporty. I swam actually, and I swam on a swim team, and I still enjoy swimming, but but not so so much in the team area. Susan, what about entrepreneurial things? Anything that you know you kind of aspired to from a utilitarian standpoint early in your years? Any you know babysitting or perhaps paper route or other types of things? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I was big on babysitting, and uh, I I babysat. Prob- <laughs> Telling those kids what to do. <laughs> probably, probably right. I, oh, I love it. I did babysit, and of course, I did participate in fundraisers for charity and. Um, that kind of thing when I was young. Yeah. And that was through high school as well as junior high and yes, those things that evolved over that period of time. Sure. Civic clubs and, uh, you know, charity uh, time commitments and, and those sorts of things. And, and I always enjoyed that. And my mom was quite active in that area. Other than babysitting, anything else that, you know, kind of generated the spending money? Were there other projects or things that you did that, uh, you know, helped, uh, Get that independence you talked about a little bit earlier on. I went to work at uh, 15, and I worked every day after school and half a day Saturday um, in, a, in a real estate office. And, ah, really? And, it, and in, in those days, all those multiple listings were filed in little boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Long before that, the MLS, that's right? right. <laughs> and, 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 and I took typing when I was in eighth grade and, sh- and shorthand. So, and, and who would have Good known? Good skills to have. Good skills to Absolutely. have. Absolutely. I mean, once the computer age, my typing was very in vogue, you know, that was. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, Susan, because I think it was 10th or 11th in grade in high school. I took a typing class, not to learn how to type, mind you, right? Because <laughs> all the girls were in the class, right? That's what I want. But I'll tell you, I look back and that was probably the most influential thing I could have done, you know, learning how to type 80 words a minute and, you know, still being able to do that today. Absolutely. Did you, did you type? quite a bit. I mean, was that something that you did in that job as well? And it's got a lot of practice doing it. I did. I did quite a bit in that job. And then of course, um, but I did a lot of filing and organizing, and you know, um, but good uh, project type of skills you start to develop because it was an office that supported like six realtors or something. But I, I did that right up until I went away to university. So I was there wow. for several for years. Yeah. Kind of like an hourly employee? Did you, you know, were you on a salary? Or, no, yeah. just hourly, yeah. Right, cool. And um, tell us a little bit about, you know, decisions around going to college. You mentioned earlier that it was kind of a foregone conclusion that you would, but you chose to stay in Florida. Um, tell us a little bit about your rationale behind, you know, how you picked your college and picked your major. Well, it, it's rather a funny story because there really wasn't any money for me to go to college. And so... I decided, my girlfriend and I, and and she was in a similar situation in terms of we really didn't have any money to go. This is a high school girlfriend. Yeah. And Uh she's still my best friend, actually. uh, And that's from, you know, 15 years old. But so we decided we could only afford basically an in-state tuition. But we set off our freshman year and went to the University of Tennessee because it was just as cheap as going to an in-state school. And we wanted to go Ah. out of state. So right, off, right. off we went to Knoxville. And uh, anyway, we were a year there. And I have to say, this was one of a very early learning experience about diversity and culture, because South Florida is like 
you know, New York. <laughs> it's and, not the South. And it's not the South. <laughs> and that you, Where you know, Tennessee is. and this yeah. is back in the, you know, uh. this is in the late seventies and uh, it was really quite striking. So anyway, I stayed a year at University of Tennessee and then I came back, transferred to the University of Florida very happily and, uh, <laughs> and uh, finished there. Did your, did your girlfriend stay up or did she no, come back she, as well? She went to Florida State. <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, you became rivals. That's right. I love that's it. right. Um, <laughs> and my major, um, this, this is also sort of funny, and you have to really, um, the importance of having belief in yourself or confidence. I was not sure I could get through the calculus in the Bachelor of Science business degree. And so I was going to major in communications. And uh, anyway, I... I did have some good mentors at the University of Florida, and I talked to people, and, you know, I, I knew I wanted marketing, and so I said, I will get through that calculus, and and I got through it. I think I got two C's in four <laughs> years, and it was in that calculus, but I got the Bachelor of Science degree, and I came out with a Bachelor of Science in Business and Marketing. So, Stuck to it. Yeah. Good for you. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about those mentoring relationships. Were there people that kind of steered you back towards the more difficult path? Uh, in terms of, you know, going at it and getting through it versus taking perhaps an easier, gentle way with your communications degree? What what were some of the things that they uh, influenced you on or how did they go about in making that making that influence? I belong to a sorority. University of Florida was, bi was big even then, you know, in terms of population. So there were uh, women in that house who were, of course, majored in all sorts of degrees. And when I talked to the people about the, these people about the business degree and to my father, who had been in business and also had been on the communication side in advertising, you know, it really uh, it, it, if you really want to be in consumer marketing and packaged goods, which was sort of where I had a bent, I you really have to get that business degree. And so I said, OK, well, let's do it. You know. Excellent. Cool. And uh, first uh, jobs during college. Did you continue oh, yeah. with the. Uh, the real estate, uh, you know, uh, direction with their other jobs that you had during school. Tell us a little oh, bit about no. that. Oh, no. Yes. No, the first year I served breakfast in the cafeteria. I mean, you know, I had to work, so I would do anything. And then when I got to, to the University of Florida, I then joined the graduate school, um, worked in the graduate school. So I was an undergrad, but I worked in the graduate school doing administrative things. So some typing, some okay. filing putting things on microfiche, which people have never heard of today, right? Um, and so I did that all the way through to graduation. So some of those real estate office, yeah, the uh, office skills, skills got reapplied. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, excellent. And so that was kind of how you uh, helped finance your education as well as pay for your, your costs while you went to school. That's right. Cool. And, um, you know, any uh, leadership responsibilities at all? Did You said you were involved in the sorority. Did you take, you know, a position of, of responsibility there and, you know, their governing body or were there other types of things that you were involved with from an organizational standpoint at the Some university? Some of those business fraternity type of things. And I can't even, you know, uh, remember the names of them, but but I was active in the American Marketing Association chapter and and some of those things, but really between school and working um, and trying to have a good time, uh, th th there wasn't so much <laughs> time available <laughs> to, to, right. to do much more. So that first job out of college, tell us a little bit about how kind of how you made that selection and and what that was and why it was. So I um, went to Louisville, Kentucky when I graduated. 
And I went because a man that I was with was hired by General Electric, who did a lot of their management training in Louisville at the time. So I landed there, and I knew that with an undergraduate degree, I needed to start in sales. And so I looked for a job in sales, and I got a job selling office equipment. And in those days, office equipment was Xeroxes and, and you know, dictaphones and these sorts of things. So anyway, I hated that job. I, hate, <laughs> I, I hated the products. I hated the people. I hated the whole situation. <laughs> And uh, I, this was a very key lesson, and I do talk to people, like graduates, about this all the time. So I decided at the ripe old age of 22 that I was going to do something I liked. And, yeah. and my list was cosmetics, alcohol, and cigarettes. And so there you go. You know, I mean, this was not a, a rocket science evaluation, but I certainly was going to get out of office equipment. So I called, I called the company and I said, you need a sales rep. You have some, you have out of stocks, which was all, you know, this was all true. Anyway, uh, I had a new job in two weeks. And, and the moral of that story is if you really don't like your job, you spend way too much of your time doing it to stay there and you get out. Get out and find something you like. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's a huge lesson. And, you know, I do a lot of, uh, you know, kind of pro bono consulting work for a lot of CEOs, friends of mine that have children coming out of college that won't listen to their advice. Of course. So they say, go, go talk to my friend, the recruiter, yes. right? And, you know, one of the things I tell them is, you know, experiment, go do some that's things. Right. At that young age, it's better to find out those things that you don't like not necessarily locking into any one career. And I think that was a pretty good experience for you, right? You understood that this was really not what you wanted to do or an industry that you wanted to be. And I remember I, you know, I really wanted to be a banker. And all I had to do was to have one summer in a bank internship with Bank of America. And Apple, believe it or not, was one of their clients. They were so privately held at the time. I hated it. I mean, it was just, I was laughing when you're telling me that because it was the same sort of experience. But, you know, I just learned that that was not for me and ended up going down some different paths. So so that first company then, was that in the cosmetics industry? Did you go right into tobacco? What, what you know, I went into tobacco. That first I, job you liked. The first <laughs> job was, I was a sales rep for Brown and Williamson Tobacco in 1981. Okay, so you would be a yeah. daddy. Terrific, terrific. So that was very early days. Wonderful. And and what were some of those, you know, uh, early leadership lessons that you had, you know, perhaps from bosses and mentors before you started managing people? Kind of think about that period. Um, you know, were there people, again, that uh, influenced you at, at B&W? Were there uh, certain lessons that you recall from those early years? Tell us a little bit about that. There are. There were, tr there were wonderful people. And I, I had a great manager for the first year and a half, which of course is so instrumental in your perspective because you're right out of school, basically. You don't know anything. Um, and and she, it, it was a woman and she, there weren't many women in that industry full stop. And sh she was very successful, very organized and very, um, uh, very articulate. And, and so, you know, she was somebody to, you, you, you wanted to emulate her style in, in those roles. And you know, I, and was she a was she a sales manager, Susan? She or was. What was her, she was. Okay, so you came into sales. Got and it. she, yeah. yeah, I went into sales, and she was a sales manager, and she also had trained new sales reps, which I um I did as my next job. I I enjoy training and development and all these things, but um, I you also learn the importance of understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, and 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 recognizing that things that are easy for you 
are not necessarily easy for others, and things that are hard for you are not necessarily hard for others. And so the best team, you know, certainly is a diverse skill set, a variety of perspectives, and uh, that. What a great lesson to yeah, learn early on. Susan. Fantastic and uh, great lesson. Now, did she help you that? Is that something that you observed in her that that she actively pursued as she would build her teams? Well, I think she was very insightful and intuitive, and she was able to help me understand what I was good at. Um, because I think, you know, and back in those days, I mean, you know, the, the whole uh, development philosophy often focused on your weaknesses. And right. that's not true today. I mean, I'm a big fan that's of Strength true. Finder. I'm a big, you know, I, I, but but recognizing that you can put a group of people together who has all the right skill sets to optimize uh, solutions. Um, mm -hmm. But I had some good experience with that as people taught me and took me under their wing. And, you know, these were some of these guys have been sales reps for 30 years and they would always be sales reps. And um and that wasn't my goal, but I learned from everybody. And I think understanding that you can learn from everybody. I say to people, you know, you can learn from your mentors and your tormentors. And if people torment you, then you make a list of how you <laughs> won't behave and you will learn, you know. <laughs> I love that. Mentors and tormentors. Yeah, That's you, you good. You will survive, you know. Do you remember the first time you started managing people? I do. I was terrible. And was that at B&W as well? It was. I wasn't good because I was really not prepared and I was young. I was 23 and I had 11 people and these people were all salespeople. So they all had more senior than you as well for the most part, or were they junior? All of them older and, and many of them, many more years of experience. And so that was very interesting. And of course, broad territories, a couple of States kinds of things, you know? And so, um, and, and, you know, the, re the, the reality when you move from being an individual contributor to managing others, <laughs> the it's a big step, big step and, and how to yeah. motivate all different kinds of people and to be able to balance personal relationships with uh, authority, those kinds of things, particularly at a very young age. Um, you know, I was happy to be exposed to that so early, but it was it was hard. What were some of the lessons that you got from those early management experiences? Well, really valuing everyone for what they do, because everyone brings something to the party. And again, this whole thing of identifying strengths and weaknesses in your team so that you can put people together to help each other so that you don't try to do it all yourself. <laughs> you know, delegation is really a, a big key to success, certainly in the C-suite, as you know. If you think you're really going to do it all yourself you're going to go down with Fooling it, yourself. you know? Yeah, yeah, So exactly. I think that was a good lesson. So you, you said you obviously struggled in those early years, but you obviously ended up ultimately in the corner office. How would you say your uh, leadership style evolved over time? I have always been very, very people-oriented. And, you know, I had the opportunity in that middle of my career to visit 55 countries. I was running brands on a global basis. And so the broad did that include some overseas positions as well? Were you always yes? Traveling? No, I was yeah, in London. I was in London for seven years, and I was in Hong, oh, nice. Hong Kong for two years. And so what that 
really taught me, uh, you know, at the personal level as well as at the business level, you know, people are a lot more the same than they are different. You know, people right. at their core, which, you know, it, sometimes in our society that doesn't seem to be a, a common sense. But um, and and all the, you know, respecting different cultures and recognizing that I was the visitor. It's not my country, you know? Right, um, right. And so, uh, and I had 30 people who spoke 37 languages in my department in England. Um, so anyway, I had a real opportunity to broaden my perspective on leadership skill and style and communicating. You know, there, it is so much about communication and you can have a great idea, but if you can't sell it to somebody or you can't convince them or you can't collaborate with them to to add value and make it a better idea, then it's not a very good idea because it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and so, and, and you're always selling as a CEO, you're selling as a marketeer, you're selling uh, in any role, you're selling yourself and, and your perspectives. And so I had a lot of opportunity to do that and do that in jobs where I didn't have the authority. And that really honed my leadership skills because I was not in the line. So you had a country manager who was running a PL and I was running a central unit of global brands. And so that doing that across the world was probably one of my best development time. And did you feel that that prepared you for though the larger positions of responsibility over time or or did you look back and say gosh I enjoyed those jobs better when I didn't have the PNL? No, I felt that that was a tremendous preparation. Now, I, I always dreamed that I would be the CMO of, of the company. And so when all of a sudden they came and said, we want you to be the CEO, this, you know, I, I never planned to be a CEO until about two years before I became one. <laughs> so wow. I, well, that wasn't my dream. Um, but when they came to me, you know, I, I, by that time, I certainly knew I had the background and I knew they didn't have somebody else. And I highly valued the opportunity. And so, you know, I went for it because you never really are ready to be the number one. There is no practice. That's true. Yeah. It's kind of like having kids. You know, you don't really get a handbook that says, here's how I become a CEO. <laughs> and, here, and here they come. Or how to raise them. And here That's they right. come. That's right. So, so at that time when you got tapped to take that first CEO role, what, what was it about that they told you that, you know, uh, you were ready? You know, what, what, what do you think they saw in you at that time uh, when you took that first CEO role? Well, the first CEO role was a, was a subsidiary of a, so a wholly owned subsidiary. So therefore I didn't have to take on all the public company stuff, which actually was great because I got to be a CEO before I had to go do the public side. Um, and so I knew that I had the, because I had worked at the parent for seven years, I knew the, the parent, I came originally from the domestic subsidiary. And so I knew the people, I knew the brands, um, I knew the company was in dire trouble, and I wanted to help fix that. So, you know, I just dove in and uh, got a, you know, obviously the, the biggest thing is getting your team right. Well, it sounds like you built a lot of relationships over those years, correct? Yes. I mean, it's safe to say, and and I, I assume that was probably one of the reasons the board uh, came and, and asked you to come in. What, what other types of skill sets would you say that you had that really made a difference in those first few years in your first CEO role? I would say I have a, a, a good 
vision and uh, strategy development capability. And I have, uh, people have said, I have a tremendous ability to communicate and to motivate, to galvanize people to perform, uh, to reach goals. And the ability to talk to different audiences in, in a way that relates to those audiences and engages them uh, and, and empowers people to deliver. And so that has been a strength. Yeah. And your companies grew tremendously. I mean, reading those percentage numbers, I had to look for a moment and make sure that I had the right <laughs> decimal points. You know, what are your thoughts about building a company culture? Because you must have seen some pretty significant change. You went through some mergers, some acquisitions. You obviously, you know, kind of rode through those things and, you know, in the end, of course, came out on top. Tell us about, you know, the thoughts and the importance of building a strong company culture. There is nothing more important, uh, in my opinion, because if you cannot build a strong company culture, which, of course, engages people to perform, you cannot perform. And so my, uh, we, we did a little bit of that in my first CEO role, but it was only two years in that that, that, that company was then sold. So then when the new companies were sort of merged together, we defined the culture we wanted to establish. And we changed all the performance systems. We changed all the pay systems. We changed the, uh, the environment to enhance collaboration. We were trying to shift the culture of very patriarchal and very caste structured to a much more collaborative and, and, and cooperative. cooperative. And, and, you know, I naively thought we could do that in three to five years. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and of course, yeah. it's, it's almost generational, you know, at the end of the day. But you have to keep plugging on it and you have to keep putting your money where your mouth is. You've got to invest in the people, invest in their development, invest in the, you know, the place where they work and live, uh, invest in their community. And, and, you know, we did this very deliberately. And in the final analysis, we were in absolutely the top 5% of, of, of employee engagement scores in the country. I mean, we, we really, and, and I think that performance speaks for itself. Yeah. What, what would you say at the time of your departure were some of the more unusual or unique characteristics of the company culture you left behind? It, it was very collaborative. It was the, uh, the, the team building and the relationships and the ability to attract outside talent had never been higher. And in a controversial industry like tobacco, that ability to attract and retain talent, understanding the vision we had, which was to reduce the harm caused by tobacco, um, was, uh, was truly inspirational. And, uh, I was inspired by those teams every day. Let's talk a little bit about the people. And, uh, you know, you've obviously managed huge organizations, I'm sure always with a hierarchical structure and maybe focusing a little bit on those folks that were closest to you in terms of either your executive team or maybe even one level below. But what do you look for, you know, when you're making bets on the people you are investing in? I, I look for passion, competency, integrity, um, collaborative capability, and, and then again, I also pay a lot of attention in teams to be sure that you have diversity in that group, a diversity of perspectives, a diversity of backgrounds, 
so that what everybody brings to the table is better than the, you know, the, the sum is, is bigger than the parts, however that goes, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> right. All right. No, awesome. And, you know, obviously your bio speaks to this and you were very early on, um, you know, one of the few females at a very large, uh, successful and publicly traded company. What, you know, how was it like in those days? What, what, what types of challenges did you have, you know, being that female in charge of the corner office or, or was that, you know, did the gender not part not get in the way? Funny story, actually, when I very first became the CEO and tobacco was a very male industry and a reporter raised his hand and asked me the question. Um, so what does it feel like to be a female CEO? And I said, well, I've never been a male CEO, so I really (laughs) don't know. (laughs) I love it. Perfect answer. And I would say one thing actually to your listeners that come to my mind for women, uh, particularly women who want to, you know, continue to move ahead and one of the things that women do to themselves is they believe that they are not ready and, and they really need to believe they are ready. Um, and the other thing they do, which is a little favorite quote of mine, is that the women have to learn to let it go um, because women don't necessarily have the confidence that men have in those early years, but they also have an ability to hold on to things and hold grudges. And and they need to be able to let it go. And uh, for women to reach those very top jobs, you've got to be able to let stuff go, move on, and and you know, keep keep on keeping on. Did you have to find, or was it a challenge to balance a family life and your career? I do not have any children of my own, and so I really did focus on my career. I've had many wonderful colleagues who have managed that balance. And uh, I always say that balance is all about you not feeling guilty. You know, it's uh, it, what anybody else thinks about the balance is irrelevant. <laughs> and uh, but I have now the blessing of five stepsons and three grandchildren. And so in retirement, I get to be the mother and the grandmother. It's very exciting. Tell us a little bit about how you interview and hire. You know, if you only had a few minutes to interview someone, what, what, what kind of things would you focus in on and ask them? Well, I would ask them, you know, what are you passionate about and, and what attracts you to our business? And um, what, what are you looking for in terms of your future outlook? You know, what are your goals and ambitions? Uh, and I, you know, it's actually, it was amusing when I was looking at that question because a lot of the questions you're asking me, I ask them, right? Sure, right. <laughs> you know, what what is your leadership style? How would your people who work for you. And also the other thing, when you talk about how do you interview, certainly at that C-suite level, and you know that you're in recruiting, we always go to, we always do the references because that is, you know, those people have a track record. And so you, you want to be sure that that's compatible. Yeah. Did you ever do any psychographic or psychometric testing? Was that a thing, you know, at the time you would evaluate some of your direct reports? We did a lot of it actually more entry level and mid level. Interesting. At this at the C level, uh, to be honest, sometimes the recruiters would have some batteries which we would which are very robust as opposed to us taking the time uh, to to do that. But to, you know, as you sometimes it works. I we were very successful in the last five years getting the right external talent. It, it there's a lot to do with chemistry, particularly when you're coming in from the outside into a a C-suite where 
50% of them grew up there together. And you've got to be sure that chemistry is right. And the, the woman who succeeded me, we recruited her from outside and uh, it was terrific. So I think, you know, you, you, you have to get that chemistry right. Yeah, awesome. Well, Susan Cameron, we're just about out of time, but we do have one last question for you. And, you know, that's kind of in that career and life advice section. You know, what would you give or what would you say to someone that maybe has their eyes in the corner office? Maybe they're not in the C-suite yet, but like you, maybe they aspire to be a CMO and maybe someday they'll get tapped on the shoulder as well. Uh, but, you know, earlier in their career, as many of our podcast audience are, you know, what types of things do you think is important uh, for someone who does have aspirations to run a large company like you have? I think first and foremost is to have confidence in yourself um, and and make fear your friend. Because I, one of my favorite quotes is Henry Ford, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And uh, so that belief and making sure that you understand that fear is simply a curtain you walk through because you, you've got to take risks to grow. And so I would say that. I would also say in that same vein, some of the things we talked about, you know, you can always go home, never turn down an opportunity that interests you because you never want to regret not taking it. You know, you can always leave it, but don't leave it on the table and think 10 years later, wow, what if I'd done that? Um, go. You know, that's a very interesting response. We've had several CEOs say, not only do I appreciate, but I was the one who took the job nobody else wanted, right? I was the one who raised my hand. Was that kind of part of your journey as well? Did you stick your hand up and say, sure, I'll go to Tokyo or Hong Kong for a couple of years? Or uh, did yeah. you, you know, feel or see that as being a characteristic that's important for your own advancement? No doubt. I had 48 hours to decide if I was going to, and I literally like just bought a house in Kentucky and, you know, <laughs> and uh, the, I had 48 hours to decide if I would move to London. And I tell the story that I decided in one and took 47 to pack. <laughs> <laughs> well, Susan, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for telling us about your journey into the corner office. Brant, I enjoyed it tremendously. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 